through the gospel of grace. And we ask these things for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And as you do uh, have a seat, I would invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them to the New Testament book of Galatians, where we are going to resume our kind of fly over this book, six chapters in Galatians. We're doing it in six Sundays. That's moving fairly quick uh, as we lead up into the Christmas season, but it's a fitting end to what we've been looking at all fall. We started this fall looking at our vision as a church and our mission, our calling from our Savior to be a church that is a group of disciples who make disciples. Following Christ and making other followers of Christ is everything we're called to. And we talked about some ways that we do that as a church. That's going to continue to be a major theme. And that led us uh, for the month of October into looking at uh, the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, celebrating the 500th anniversary of that Reformation, and reminding ourselves what it is that defines who we are as Christians. And that has led us to this series in the New Testament book of Galatians, which probably nowhere more in the Bible, nowhere any, anywhere else in the Bible, I'll say that right eventually, uh, is the gospel portrayed with greater precision and greater urgency than it is in the book of Galatians. And that's what we're seeing as we enter this um, now third chapter, which really gets to the heart of what this book has to teach. Um, I gotta be honest, this chapter three that we're gonna look at this morning is the hardest chapter to take all in one Sunday because I wanna do like five sermons on it. Uh, and you still wouldn't run out of stuff to say. And there's actually a time and a place to walk that slowly through an important passage of scripture, but there's also a time and a place to take it all at once so that we can continue to see the sweep of what God is communicating to us that's our goal this morning. And to kind of lead us into that, I want to ask you a question. It's a question that has no doubt occurred to you if you are a Christian, maybe even if you're not a Christian. It's no doubt occurred to you probably more than once. It's a question that has been asked to me more than once as a preacher. In fact, Several years ago, one of the members of our church asked me this question uh, on a Sunday after the service in which I had just preached a sermon about the fact that we are saved, the Bible tells us, by grace alone and there is nothing at all that we can do to perform our way into heaven or to earn our salvation. I don't even remember the passage of scripture that morning. This was quite a number of years ago, but I remember that was the point. And in response, one of our members came up and said, you know, I got the point. I understood the passage. Totally agree with that. Salvation's by grace. I get that. I understand that. Now, the question I have is, what about the Ten Commandments? Don't we still have to, like, follow those? What do you think? See, these are the kinds of questions you get asked when you're a pastor. And this is one of the few times I get to ask everybody else, how would you have responded? <laughs> Seriously, what do you think? Here's the Bible. It's got all of these rules and, and regulations in it, all of these commands to do this and don't do that, live a certain way, don't live another way. And that's probably really nicely summarized in the Ten Commandments, although that's certainly not the only place you find rules to follow in the Bible, but there's the Ten Commandments. I mean, virtually everybody's heard of them, and it's pretty basic stuff, you know. Uh, don't have any other gods before God. Don't worship idols, you know. Don't murder, don't uh, steal, don't covet, and don't, you know, I mean, it's pretty basic delineation between right and wrong. Very clear commands. Do this, don't do that. So, if the gospel is that message that we are saved by grace alone and not our performance, and you believe it, do you still have to obey the Ten Commandments? Now, I want to start with this question um, because that's not just Bible trivia. 
I mean, as interesting as that might be, if you're sitting around a Bible study group and like, you know, you think you have the answer to a conundrum <laughs> and you can talk about it, you know, over drinks with some Christian friends, that's fine. But that's not, this isn't just Bible trivia. This is actually a really important question. It's one of the biggest issues in Christianity. And it's a tension that is as old as the gospel itself. And, and you can sense the, the tension probably already that, that sort of drives the question because, you know, if we're saved by obeying God's rules, if we have to obey all the rules that God commands in the Bible for us to obey, that seems to nullify the gospel, which, by the way, is, is how we just ended the last chapter of Galatians, wasn't it? The insistence that I don't want to nullify the grace of God. And so it doesn't seem right to say, yeah, you have to do all of that stuff. Not if you believe that Jesus pays for your sins on the cross. But on the other hand, it doesn't really seem right to say you can ignore all that stuff either, does it? I mean, really? Jesus goes to the cross, and so all of a sudden now adultery is okay? That, that doesn't seem right. Jesus goes to the cross, so now it's okay to murder people? I mean, that, that, obviously it doesn't seem right to say you, you can ignore all that stuff. It's unimportant. So how does this work? Well, it is an old problem. It's also not just a theoretical problem. It's a deeply personal one. And that's why we need to talk about this. That's why the Bible talks about it. It's a deeply personal problem because the confusion surrounding the intersection of the gospel of grace, on the one hand, and God's law, his, his rules that he's supposed to follow on the other, how those two mix and the confusion around them results in churches that are filled with people on the one hand who believe in Jesus but they constantly live beaten down with a sense of guilt and shame. Always aware every moment that they are failing to live up to a standard, God's standard or their own standard or the standard of their community or their family. So on the one hand, we've got churches that are full of professing Christians who are constantly beaten down for a failure to live up to a standard. On the other hand, at the very same time, most churches have a lot of people in them who are professing Christians who are essentially living for themselves, following the value system of the world, getting the job, building the career, doing all the stuff the world tells you to do to kind of build your own empire, and ultimately not really feeling too much urgency about it all because we know that we're saved by grace. And so we don't need to perform anymore. And neither of those seem quite right. Questions about what the gospel of Jesus does to the law of God erupted as soon as the gospel was first preached. This is not a new problem. It's a very old one. And it has stayed and it will continue to stay until Jesus comes back. The church has constantly had to clarify the gospel in light of this tension. And thankfully, the book of Galatians helps us do just that. This whole tension between the law and grace is why the book of Galatians was written. And we get to the heart of that answer this morning in chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, let's take a look at what's written here. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a church, remember, that's going to be important. Everything that's written here was addressed first and foremost to a church full of professing Christians, just like you and me, people who already know and believe the gospel, and yet he, the Apostle Paul is preaching the gospel to them over and over and over again, and there's a reason. It's not like, yeah, we already know this stuff, we've got it, can we move on to something else? That's his whole point. In fact, that's where he begins in the passage that uh, Jordan read for us earlier, Galatians 3, uh, starting in verse 1, he says, oh foolish Galatians, who has... Who has bewitched you? Who's, who's fooled you? Who's, who's pulled the wool over your eyes? Somebody has sold you a, a bill of goods, a lie. 
and you're believing it. What's the lie? He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit, that is the Spirit of God, when you were saved and the Holy Spirit moved into your life to empower you to live for Him, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? That's a rhetorical question. The answer was obvious. It was the second one. It was by hearing with faith. And so he then says, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected or completed in the flesh? The first issue is we kind of trace sort of the main argument, really the flow of thought through this chapter, which answers this question of the tension between law and grace. This is how the Bible answers it. The first point is to understand that the gospel is not the on-ramp to a freeway called the Christian life. The gospel is is the freeway. The gospel is the whole freeway. The gospel is not just the message that you believe, and once you believe it, you have now become a Christian. It's like the way you start to become a Christian. It is certainly that, but it is far more than that. And that's where the freeway analogy maybe helps. You know, it's like there's an on-ramp onto a freeway I want to get into. Once I find the on-ramp, I can get on the freeway, and now I'm on it. But of course, at that point, The on-ramp is in the rearview mirror. You you leave it behind. It was just the means by which you got onto the freeway. And it's very easy to think of the gospel of Jesus in those terms. The gospel is the message that God became man in Jesus Christ. He lived a perfectly righteous life. I couldn't live. He died my sinner's death for me on the cross. And then he rose again from the dead in new life. And by placing my faith in him, his righteousness gets credited to me. My sin's penalty gets credited to him and I receive new life and I get to go to heaven. I trust him to pay for my sins. In a nutshell, that's the gospel. And it's very easy to see that as the beginning of the Christian life. If you believe that and you trust Jesus, then you are now on this new road called the Christian life. And whatever else it consists of, the gospel is just what got you there. You then move on to learn other, maybe more advanced things that don't really have as much to do with that first sort of basic message. But that's not actually the picture that's being painted here in the Bible. It's not just the on-ramp onto the freeway. Rather, it is the freeway itself. He says, again, a rhetorical question in verse 3. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected in the flesh that is by your own efforts? And the clear answer to that is no, that's not the way it works. Having begun in the Spirit, having trusted God, you then continue to grow as a Christian by trusting God more and more. The gospel of Jesus is not something you go through into the Christian life and then leave behind. It's something you continue as a Christian to go further and further into, to learn more, to apply in new ways, to discover more deeply, to own more personally, and to be transformed by more thoroughly. All of the Christian life orbits around the gospel of Jesus. It's not only how we become Christians, it's how we live and grow as Christians. Or if I could switch up the metaphor just a little bit with winter coming on. Becoming a Christian is a lot like coming in out of a blizzard at night where you stay out there long enough, you're just gonna freeze to death. But there's the beautiful warm house in front of you where the fire is roaring and the table is filled and there are people there who love you. There's a place for you there to experience the joy and the warmth of being home. That's what it's like to leave the world of sin and enter the family of God and become a Christian. And if I I want to press that analogy a little bit, the gospel is not just the front door by which you enter the house. The gospel is the entire house. That's what you enter into. That's what you live in. That's what gives us life. 
And so let's think about this for a moment. There's an important point being made here just before we move on. This is very personal and very practical. What the Bible is telling us here is that what it means to grow as a Christian is to enter more fully into the gospel. How does that work? It's interesting in verse 1 he says that it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was, uh, most of our English translation, translated Bibles say, publicly portrayed as crucified. Uh, Tim Keller points out that that word can also mean um, vividly portrayed or clearly portrayed. And the idea, it seems to be a word of emphasis. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is saying is when I first went to you guys and told you the gospel and you believed it, you became the church that you are today, when I was communicating the gospel to you, it was not a dry theology lecture. Here's some facts. You need to get them down. You need to learn them. You got it? Yeah, we got it. You believe it? Yeah, we believe it. Great. Now we can all go home. Who cares? He's like, that's not how it went went down. Oh, there were facts. You got to know who Jesus is. You got to believe he died for you. I explained the facts, but he says I explained them with passion. There was a vivid, a clear, a compelling portrayal of the gospel to which they responded in faith by giving their whole lives, not only believing with their minds, but by giving over their whole lives to Jesus. The gospel was announced both factually and vividly. They became Christians by responding to that with both heart and mind. Now, he says... This is the way you continue as a Christian. You respond with mind and heart to the gospel in newer and deeper ways. Uh, Keller's phrase for this, which I really like, is redepicting the gospel to ourselves. Redepicting the gospel to ourselves. Rehearsing the gospel of Christ over and over again in a thousand different ways so that the mind is continually filled with its truth and the heart is continually moved by it as every day produces new opportunities, new challenges, new pains, new temptations to sin, and so forth. That's the Christian life, redepicting the gospel to ourselves. How does that work? How does that work? Hundreds and hundreds of different ways. Probably depends on who you are. I'll, I'll give you a little window into how it works with me sometimes because I know the truth of the gospel well. But I'm not always resonating with it at any given moment in my heart. One of the ways I tend to not resonate with it, we all have what some people call besetting sins, things that you tend to just always go back into. For me, it just comes into like, and I've shared this with you before, it's, it's just kind of like me world. It's me world. It's protection of my time. It's making sure my needs and the needs of my family are covered. It can make me get really focused and driven on like, you know, working hard and setting financial goals and taking care of this calendar thing and just making sure everything is perfect. And, and of course, all of those things are fine, but they become sinful when that's like the whole goal of my life. And if you ask me, is that the goal of your life? I'd say no, but sometimes I have to admit, like, that's what my heart is full of. It's just me kind of building my own little kingdom. And so in those moments, I'm not really being driven by the gospel of Christ. I'm being driven by my desire to have my life and my family's life a certain way. So how does redepicting the gospel to myself look in those cases? I'll tell you how it's looked just recently, last couple of months. Um, first of all, it starts with the Bible. I read things like Luke 12, 15, where Jesus says that a man's life does not consist in what he owns and his possessions. <sighs> yeah, okay. 
I get it. And then he goes on and he tells a parable, a story of a man who is a fool because he builds his whole life on his stuff and then he dies and he's got nothing to show for it eternally. And the story starts to animate my mind and fuel my imagination. And I go, I don't want to be that guy. And then I end up uh, reading halfway through John Piper's excellent little book, Don't Waste Your Life, with a group of guys that I've been having a Bible study with this past fall. And he's basically walking us through as Christians the fact that our lives are about Christ and we don't want to get caught up in these lesser things. And now I'm reading about that and I'm, I'm going, yes, and I'm resonating with it. And I'm hearing other guys talk about it too. And I'm like, yeah, that's who I want to be. And so now I'm thinking more and more about this. And you know what the final nail in the coffin has been for me? It's not really final, but, but it was the thing that really brought it home to me personally was what some people call music. Other people wouldn't call it music. It was actually hip-hop. And um, I realize I'm a middle-aged white guy. And so when I say that there are a couple of Christian hip-hop artists I really like, that may sound weird, and that's who I am, so I'm just going to go with it, okay? Um, I've got on my iPod some uh, songs by Lecrae, a Christian hip-hop artist. He was actually motivated to write a hip-hop song on that same book, Don't Waste Your Life. And so I'm driving around in the car and I'm going to this Bible study and I'm thinking about wasting my life and I'm thinking about Luke 12, 15 and then this hip-hop song comes, song comes on. I was born and raised in Oakland, California, by the way. So I feel like this is not quite as weird as it might be for some people, but there it is, okay? And the beat starts going and the words start flying and I've heard it enough now that I can understand the words even though he's talking a million miles a minute. And it just starts getting under my skin. I get goosebumps and my heart starts beating. And, and I'm just going, yeah, and it's all about living for something more than just the stuff of this world. I'm like, yes, that's who I want to be because Christ has called me to live for his kingdom. Now, what I just shared with you was some intellectual stuff. I read the Bible, some imaginative stuff. I see the story, some community stuff. I get other guys around me talking about the same thing and some artistic stuff. I get music going that resonates with my soul and pretty soon my whole heart is engaged with the fact that the death and resurrection of Jesus means my life has a bigger purpose and I get motivated I say yes that's the guy I want to be that's just one small very personal example of redepicting the gospel to yourself now you can do the same thing I understand some of you wouldn't classify hip-hop as music so We'll pray for you. Um, that's okay. <laughs> Actually, I'm not a huge hip-hop guy either, but I, I like some of it. It's great. But here's the point. Uh, within that, we have the scriptures. We've got to read them. We've got to memorize them. That's one way to redepict the gospel of yourself. When's the last time you memorized a couple of verses of scripture? If there's a truth that's really key and really transformational, commit it to memory, because as you do that, it becomes a little bit more part of you. You recite it and you know it better. To be able to then connect with other people on it, talk about these things in community, in community life groups and so forth. There are ways to redepict the Bible to ourselves. Um, sometimes even things like referring to poetry. Uh, a few Sundays ago, I, I closed a sermon with a poem. I'm not a big poetry guy, but my wife had stumbled across a poem that related exactly to what the, the message was that morning, from the, that morning from the Bible. And I gotta admit, the just fitly chosen words can sometimes be so moving you know, you read the stanzas of some old songs or hymns. Uh, sometimes it's great to sing them too, but sometimes just to read them. They, they just artfully express truths that can start to move the heart, not just inform the mind. And then, of course, there is art too. There's other ways to redepict the truths of the gospel to ourselves through music, uh, whatever your preferred style of music is. 
If it takes biblical truth and sets it artfully to song, it will engage heart and mind and emotions. Even visual arts. Uh, Some of us are very visual people, others not so much. This can be a very kind of individual sort of thing. Uh, But whether it's paintings or uh, other artwork and visual imagery like that, all of these things can be tools to flood the heart and mind with the truths of the gospel, to vividly portray Christ crucified so that I am engaging with those truths, body, mind, soul, spirit, emotions, every part of me in that moment where my life is presenting that difficulty, that issue, or that temptation. So friends, question, how can you effectively redepict the gospel to yourself? so that it engages both mind and heart. This is what it means. This is what it looks like to experience the gospel as the road itself, not just the on-ramp to the road. It's the essence of the Christian life, not just the beginning of it. Well, I want to move uh, a little more quickly through the middle part of the chapter and then land on the conclusion. So we've started with this idea that the gospel is the essence of the Christian life, not just the on-ramp to it. The next thing that the Apostle Paul does is he points out that the gospel is also the consistent message of the Bible. From start to finish, it has one main message, and that is that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's true in the Old Testament. That's true in the New Testament. That's what the Bible says about itself. In verses 6 through 9, the Apostle Paul turns our attention back to the Old Testament when he goes back to Abraham. Clear back in Genesis, just as Abraham believed God and, now quoting Genesis chapter 15, it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, here's an interesting phrase, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed very interesting. Here's God talking to Abraham, clear back in the Old Testament. It sounds like he's only talking about the ancient Israelites, the descendants of Abraham who would be the special people of God during that Old Testament era. And yet here's the Bible saying, no, 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 no. He's preaching the gospel to Abraham before Jesus was even around. In other words, the gospel was not a new message when Jesus showed up. It's the consistent message of the Bible all the way from the beginning. It's the promise that salvation would come to all people. And notice here, the promise is about what God does, not about what we do. God says, I promise through you all nations will be blessed. I will send somebody through whom all peoples can find eternal life. That's what I do. Your job is just to believe it. Nothing in here about all the rules that you have to obey. That becomes important. Now let's move on to the next part. He essentially insists in the next little section that salvation by promise and salvation by law are two completely separate roads and they're mutually exclusive. Verses 10 to 12. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. If you want to get right with God by following enough of his rules and showing that you're a righteous person, he's saying it's not going to work and that's the message of the Bible. This is the argument. That's what the Bible's been trying to tell us. You can try to pursue getting right with God through being a good person and it won't work, or you can pursue getting right with God by trusting him to do what he said he was going to do. And that does work. And the message of the Bible, according to the Bible, is that the second option is the right one. That's always been the message. Pursue getting right with God by trusting him. There are two separate roads, which means that there are really two kinds of people. There are people of faith and there are people of works. 
You see, the language just depends on whose perspective you're looking from. If you're looking at it from God's perspective, salvation either happens by promise or by law. That means God's going to promise to save people, or he's going to give us the rules to follow to save ourselves. That's, that's what law means. So it's either by promise or it's by law. If you look at it from our perspective, it's either by faith or it's by works. That's, that's the what do we do about it question. If God gives us salvation by making a promise, then our job is just to trust him. That's what faith means, trust. We just trust him to keep his promise, and then we're saved. But if God gives us a list of rules to follow, then our response is obedience. We've got to follow them. We've got to perform works. We've got to do deeds. We've got to follow the rules. And people of faith are those who base their identities and their very lives on what God does. And trust him. And so the, the road of promise, the lifestyle that's based on promise, is one of trusting God to keep his promises, and that shapes my identity and my decisions. That I'm trusting that God will do what he said he was going to do. The opposite is if I'm a person of works, that's when I base my identity and my life on what I can do. And so the road of, of law, then, the road of works, is basing my sense of self and the choices I make on whether I can constantly attain a certain standard. Whether I think it's God's standard, or standards that my own, standards of my own, or standards that my community sets for me. If my whole identity is wrapped up in whether I can keep that standard, I'm living the life of law. The Bible's point, these are two different roads. You can't do them both. They don't work. And then he brings it home in the next few verses where he says that God's promise to Abraham actually came before the law. And so therefore, it's the most fundamental. See, here's what's going on here. Here's what the Bible's getting at. Let me just kind of summarize this whole thing quickly if I can. We, okay, we have two roads. God's either going to save us by promise or he's going to save us by law. Well, here's where the confusion comes in. When you open the Bible and you start reading it, you find both. You find lots of promise and you find lots of law, lots of rules to follow. You find lots of promises that I will save my people no matter what, <clears throat> and you also find the Ten Commandments. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and it will be well with you. So it gets confusing if we're insisting that these are two different lifestyles, that they can't be mixed, and I want to know which one I want to follow and open up the Bible for some guidance, I find both, so now I'm just confused. What am I supposed to do? Is the Bible contradicting itself? Because sometimes, especially when you read the Old Testament, it kind of sounds like it is. On some passages of the Bible, God says, I will save my people despite their failure to keep my law. And then you run in other passages where he says, if you don't keep my law, you won't be saved. And, and, and so which is it? What do we do with this? It feels confusing because it feels like the Bible's contradicting itself. And what Galatians chapter 3 is trying to help us say, see is that, yeah, both law and promise are in the Bible. i got to keep my sides right. Promise and law. There we go. <laughs> They're both in the Old Testament. They're both in the Bible. But they don't both fulfill the same purpose. God's original promise that he just referred to with Abraham was that I will bless all peoples. I will make a way for all peoples around the world, all ethnic groups, not just the ancient Israelites, everybody, to experience eternal salvation through what I do. That's my promise. That is the main message of the Bible. Then, sometime later, about four and a half centuries later, along comes a guy named Moses, and God gives him the Ten Commandments, and thus starts the law. So you find the law in there. But here's the point. The Bible's saying the law came later, so it doesn't trump the promise. It, it doesn't abrogate it. It doesn't wipe it out and replace it. 
The promise God made was never revoked. God promised that he would make a way for all people to be saved by what he did, not by what we do. That's the message of the Bible. The law came later, and so it does not trump that or change the message of the Bible. So part of the way to resolve the the apparent tension is to realize that the law and the promise are not saying the same thing. Only the promise of God results in salvation. The law was never meant to bring us salvation. And here's the practical point of this just before we move into the very last part. This is why this matters. This is why this becomes so deeply personal even in a modern world. Even though there's a lot of rules in the Old Testament that the Israelites were commanded to follow, those rules don't change the Bible's consistent message. That salvation comes through God's promise that he would save us, not our performance to save ourselves. Which leaves us with some interesting questions. I'd like to lodge in your mind and just encourage you to think about, talk about in your community life groups this week or around your dinner tables or over coffee, table, uh, uh, coffee shop tables with friends. When are you most tempted to look to your own efforts to make yourself acceptable to God? That's one question. At what points are, <clears throat> are you most tempted to kind of rely on your own performance to make yourself acceptable to God? Is it in your work? Is it family situations? Is it, I mean, it can be real different for everybody, but we all have that temptation somewhere. So even those of us who are professing Christians, we believe that Jesus is the one who saves us. We're all tempted to feel good about our standing with God because of how we perform. How does that look for you? Here's another question, another way to get at the same thing. What causes you um, despair in life? Like, Like, what's the thing you just can't imagine living without? I mean, if you lost this, you're not even sure you could go on anymore. That's maybe a pretty good indication of what I'm building my life on, right? It's sort of like a a boat anchored uh, out in a deep bay or something, and and, you you can't see the anchor. It's way down there on the bottom somewhere, and the The water obscures it, but if you want to find the anchor, you could just follow the anchor chain all the way down and you'd find where that anchor's laying. Well, sometimes if I look at what I love the most or what causes me the most despair, it's kind of like following an emotional anchor chain all the way down to the root of what I'm basing my life on. For me, I love many of the roles that God has blessed me to play. I love being a husband to my wife, Amy. I love being a father to my kids. It's great. Our college-aged daughter was back home for Thanksgiving, all four of us around the table again. It was just wonderful. I love that. I love being a pastor of a church. I could give several others. Here's the point, though. To love those things is good and right. To build my identity on them? It's not what I aspire to. It's not what God has called me to. Yet, if I lost my wife... Heaven forbid, if I lost a child, if I lost a a position of leading a church, I would struggle mightily, (laughs) struggle mightily. It would be devastating emotionally. But the key question I have to ask myself is, but would it end my life? Could I imagine going on? Is that what my whole identity is based on? Or do I recognize that I still have been accepted by Jesus Christ, loved by him, and put in this world for a purpose that doesn't change? 
It cannot be taken away regardless of what I can or cannot produce. There's two roads, the road of law, the road of promise. The road of promise is the one the Bible puts in front of us. And that leads us then to this last part, verses 19 down to 25. Having hopefully clarified the point here, okay, you find both law and promise in the Bible, but promise, faith, trusting God to do what he said he's going to do is how we're supposed to live our lives. We've talked a little bit about what that might look like. Okay, well then the next logical and obvious question is, okay, if that's true, then why is there all this law in the Bible? Because there's an awful lot of it, especially if you read the Old Testament. There's an awful lot of rules and regulations and stipulations God's people were commanded to follow. Thankfully, that question was so obvious, the Bible answers it for us. It anticipates it. Uh, Verse 19, there it is. Why, then, the law? If the consistent message of the Bible is you don't get saved by keeping the law, then why why is there all this law? Why are there all these rules in the Bible? And it tells us it was added, the law was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. In other words, what he's saying is, you know, the law was kind of a a temporary add-on to to God's main plan. It was inserted temporarily to prop up a bad situation because here you have God's people who are promised that someday somebody's going to come to save them, but this was hundreds of years before Jesus came. So the promise wasn't going to be fulfilled for a long time. In the meantime, God's people are still sinning and still sinning and still sinning. And they're still relying on themselves to be right with God. So what does God do? And the answer was, well, he gave them the rules and the regulations in response to their sin. This is so important to know how the Bible works. And this is the Bible's own teachings telling us how to interpret itself. It's it's telling us how it works. When you read all the rules and regulations in the Old Testament, God himself says they were there in response to the sinfulness of my people. They kept sinning, and so I gave them rules to show them that's not okay, to hopefully help restrain the sin to some extent, but ultimately it wasn't even really to restrain sin. It was to show people what sin was. Verse 21, he elaborates. Is the law then contrary to the promise? That, that, that was the, the confusion that got us started on this in the first place, right? God either saves us by promise or he saves us by law, and it looks like he's saying both, and so it's a contradiction. And the Bible's answer to that is, no, it's not a contradiction because God only promised to save us by promise. Sorry for the repetition there. Um, He never promised to save us by the law. The law was never given as a standard by which you could earn your salvation into heaven. If a law, verse 21 continues, had been given that could give life, meaning eternal life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law, but the scripture imprisons everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. See what the Bible's saying there? The law of Moses was never given as a means to salvation. That wasn't its point. That's not how you're supposed to read it. Obey all these rules and you'll be saved. As if God expects that a lot of people are actually going to be able to do that. That was never the point. In fact, the point in verses 22 and 23 is this. By spelling out what a righteous life would look like, the Bible shows us that everyone fails to meet that standard. 
So it means when it says the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Some people live much better lives than others, but nobody lives a perfect life. Nobody does the right thing in the right way for the right reasons all the time. And if you think you do, just go back and read the Old Testament law. You'll see it over and over and over again. Just start with the Ten Commandments. Have I ever lusted in my heart? Have I ever coveted? Have I ever worshipped somebody more than God? On and on it goes. It's there like a jailer to show us that we are trapped. You know, you know what the Bible's saying? The rules of God were given to us to show us that we could never follow the rules of God. That's the point. To convince us that you can't do it and so to direct our attention away from the law. This is really weird. This is like theological judo, right? Where you use the opponent's momentum against him by taking our desire to obey the rules. He gives us rules, not so that we can obey them, but to show us that we never have any hope of obeying them and to get our eyes off of the rules. He gives us rules so that we'll quit looking at the rules. That's, that's really hard of what the Bible is saying here. And we will look elsewhere for another solution. We will look to his promise of a savior. And in this way, verse 23 says, the law serves as both a, a, a jailer. Sorry, I got behind myself here a little bit. It serves as both a jailer, but it also serves as a, a tutor or a teacher. If you're taking notes, I'll leave that up there for a minute, so don't feel rushed. It serves as both a, a jailer, imprisoning us under sin, but it also serves as a, a guardian, some of our Bibles say, um, or, or a tutor. This was like somebody who would, in an estate, there would be a young child born and they were going to inherit the estate and you would hire a manager or a guardian to not only raise the child but also to kind of teach them and train them so that when they're finally ready to inherit, they would know what to do. So like, here's this young child who's actually the heir of the estate, but he doesn't have any power yet because he's too young for it. He doesn't know how to handle the responsibility. And so he's got this guardian and this tutor that keeps him away from his rightful inheritance, but is also trying to teach him how to use it. In the same way, the Apostle Paul says, the law of God was kind of like a guardian. Salvation by faith in Christ wasn't there yet, but it was trying to teach us to look to Christ for salvation. So once again, let's pull this back and bottom line it. Here's what the Bible's driving at. By showing us that every human being who ever lived fails to meet God's standards. The law teaches us to look elsewhere for our salvation. In other words, why do you open up the Bible and find both promise and law? Because the promise that God would save us is the main message, and the law points to the promise. It shows us that we can never do it on our own, and we need to look elsewhere for our salvation. We need to trust that God will save us anyway, for if he doesn't, we have no hope. The law doesn't contradict the promise. It actually cooperates and advances the message of the promise. And there are some very practical applications of how all this works and what a gospel-shaped life then looks like, a life that's defined by the gospel of promise, and how does that look? And that's the subject of actually the remaining three chapters of the book of Galatians. So we're going to pick that up next Sunday and pause here. Just before we end, though, let's bring this back down to the practical level one last time because there's so much here that will reshape the way we think and function as we live our lives as Christians. Let me go back to the original question that I started with this morning. Do Christians have to obey the Ten Commandments? Well, 
having now walked through Galatians chapter 3, hopefully we're a little bit better equipped to answer that question the way the Bible tells us to answer it. Turns out it's not quite as clean as a simple yes or no. It's a little bit nuanced, but there is an answer. The answer is um, no, but sort (laughs) of. No, but sort of. Here's what we mean. Definitive, clearly, no. When it comes to, am I going to be right with God? Can I be saved? Does my life matter? Who am I? What do I do? Why do I matter? Am I okay with God? Who am I? These are some of the most important questions a person can ask. When it comes to those questions, you don't have to follow the Ten Commandments to get an answer. You have to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ who loved you and died for you when you were still a sinner and that love can never be taken away. That defines who you are if you're a Christian. So no, we don't have to obey the Ten Commandments in order to be part of God's family and have eternity with Him in heaven. On the other hand, the reason I said sort of is that God's law still delineates the difference between right and wrong very clearly. And that hasn't changed. Uh, Jesus' coming didn't make adultery all of a sudden right. Jesus' coming uh, didn't make murder right. It just gives adulterers and murderers hope. That's what it does. But it doesn't move the moral goalposts. It doesn't change right and wrong. The coming of Jesus doesn't make covetousness or idolatry or theft right. It just means that covetous people, idolaters, and thieves all have hope to be with God forever because of what his son has done for us. In fact, now that we are saved by grace rather than by our own efforts to keep the law, Tim Keller argues, I think persuasively, that we are now actually, paradoxically, we're in a better position to keep the law because we're saved by grace. For at least a couple of reasons. Uh, Keller says, first of all, if I know that Christ has saved me without keeping the law, then I will be a better keeper of the law because I won't be always tempted to minimize it which is what I'm doing if I think my standing with God is based on whether I can keep his law, then I'm always going to be tempted to try to shrink his rules down and kind of lower the standards to a place where I can meet them, you know? I mean, technically, that probably wasn't the best choice, but I don't know if it was outright sin. You know, I want to, like, define things down all the time so that I can justify myself and feel better about myself because I have to because my identity is built on that. And so... Surprisingly, in my efforts to follow the law, often I reduce the law to nothing. I do violence to the law. But if I don't have to follow the law, if I know that Christ has forgiven me, even though I can't follow the law and I admit it, I'm free to say the law is what it is. The standard is incredibly high. I've got to do the right thing for the right reasons in the right way all the time, and I can't meet the standard. And I'm free to say that because I don't have to meet the standard in order to be accepted by God because Christ loves me anyway. And also, our joy at being loved by God is a far better motivator long-term for obedience and righteous living than any kind of fearful need to measure up ever could be. So, paradoxically, by freeing us from the need to obey the law for salvation, the gospel makes us better at obeying the law and living a life that's consistent with the Ten Commandments, consistent with right and wrong because of God's Spirit in us. Friends, let me close with a couple of questions here. As we said, this is not just Bible trivia. This goes to the core of who we are as Christian people and what gospel our lives and our words are announcing to the world around us. 
Two questions to think about as we end this morning. First, are you trying to get right with God by being good enough for him? However you define good enough. That may come from your reading of the, of the Bible. It may come from uh, your family and your community. It may come from your own expectations of yourself. But are you trying to get right with God by being good enough as defined by some standard that you either do or do not meet? If so, learn the lesson of the law. It's not, here's the standard you must meet in order to be good with God. The lesson of the law is, here's the standard which you cannot meet. You must rely on my promise to save you through Jesus by grace anyway. And one last question. First question, are you trying to get right with God by being good enough for him? If so, what's your standard? Second question, does your experience with God's law lead you to try harder? Or does it lead you to rely on Jesus more deeply? And we'll end here where we started. The Christian life is a matter of redepicting Christ to ourselves over and over again so that our minds and our hearts respond more deeply. And every time I come up to my failures to keep God's law, that, if I'm learning a lesson of the Bible, will drive me to rely more fully on Jesus, to be yet even more impressed with his grace, to be more shocked that he loves me in light of this temptation, in light of this sin, in light of this failure, and to more deeply enter into that love and acceptance and experience his power to free me from sin. So does your experience with God's law lead you to try harder or to rely more on Jesus? I need to pray. I want to invite you to pray with me because this is one of those sermons that the Bible's clear and I can deliver it. But man, I need this message. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much that you are clear in your word in the Bible about what you demand of us but you're also clear about why you're even demanding it. You're demanding it not so that we can attain a law, you're demanding it so that we would look to you for salvation. And I'm thankful, Jesus, that you provided that salvation for us. When you came, God, you, you came yourself as a man, the man Jesus Christ, to live in this world, to live the perfectly righteous life we can't live, to die the sinner's death we deserve to die, and then to offer both your righteousness and your payment of our sins to us by living and dying in our place. That's all grace, and that is how you fulfilled the promise you made so many centuries ago to save all peoples from all over the world if we just trust in you. Father, I pray that you would move my heart this morning to trust more deeply and fully in you. I pray that you would move hearts in this room, that we would build our identities on you, that we would take our deepest failings and senses of needing to measure up and allow the truth of the gospel to transform how we see and how we think and how we feel and how we respond and who we ultimately live for. And we pray that you would do this in our midst so that our lives and our church would shout the gospel of grace to the community around us and that you would draw many other men and women to find salvation through Christ through the members of this church. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.